Good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you're watching from today. This is the third event in a series produced by Open Society Foundations Europe and Central Asia program. We're discussing how the EU can responsibly navigate the issues of energy and security amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If you missed the first two events, these were on making energy sanctions on Russia effective and on accelerating the green transition. You can find them both on the YouTube channel of Open Society, and you'll find a link posted in the chat. My name's James Cantor. I'm the host of the EU Screen Politics podcast, and I'm the moderator for this series. Today's event is called Winter is Coming, How to Shield the Most Vulnerable and Preserve the Consensus on the War. How, for example, do the EU and its member states make sure that people don't have to choose between heating and eating? How do they make sure that people who can afford energy savings do make those savings? And how do they make sure to avoid a backlash against support for Ukraine, which was almost certainly the target of war crimes again this week? For those online, welcome. Please put your questions in the chat. For those in the room, please scan the QR code. We'll aim to get to the Q&A around midday. With us in the studio, we have Marc-Antoine Isle Maziga. Marc-Antoine is the director of the Center for Energy and Climate at the IFRI think tank in France. He was formerly a Russia program manager at the International Energy Agency. We have Olivia Lazard. Olivia is a fellow at the think tank Carnegie Europe and a specialist in the geopolitics of climate. She's also a bit of a TED Talk rock star. Her green energy video from March has more than 1.2 million views. We also uh, welcome uh, Martin Vladimirov. Martin is director of the Energy and Climate Program at the Center for the Study of Democracy, think tank in Bulgaria. Among his projects, developing ways to measure strategic energy vulnerability. And we also have Paula Pino. Paula has been with the European Commission's Energy Directorate since 2015. She's now a director there, and she's overseeing some of the key issues we'll be discussing, like a just transition and consumer welfare. We'll get a conversation going shortly. But first, we'll have a few words from Shelko Jovanovic. Uh, Shelko is the director of the Roma Initiatives Office. The office works with open society to give Roma people equal opportunities in housing, employment, and education. Jelko will make a short presentation that I think will help us frame the seriousness of some of the challenges that we're facing. So over to you, Jelko. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, I, I want to thank to your active and OpenSet Foundation for organizing this and uh, giving the, uh, me opportunity to uh, start uh, such a panel with uh, uh, so uh, many distinguished guests. I'm very sorry I couldn't be there in person. So I will make three points in my uh, uh, opening. Uh, the first point is about uh, the perspective that we take on, on this topic, on this issue. And this is um, uh, not only terminological, but very political uh, 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 perspective. Uh, we talk about energy crisis, but I think we should be talking about energy poverty because the most vulnerable are not uh, vulnerable because of the crisis. This is not a short-term issue. We are talking about energy poor people, people who don't have enough energy for their basic necessities to heat, to cool, 
um, to provide uh, uh, power for their um, uh, appliances and to light their homes. Uh, this is not a small group of people in Europe in the 21st century. This is about 34 million people. Um, and when we see uh, in that perspective that this is a long-term problem, uh, obviously uh, uh, this uh, uh, conversation should be about short-term uh, uh, impact of the crisis, but effectively about a long-term problem in Europe. Uh, some research uh, also suggests that the issue is not only uh, about people who face energy poverty in terms of uh, in, in not, not having enough energy uh, supply for their uh, uh, homes and families, but also people who out of necessity are illegally uh, uh, connected uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, energy supply uh, systems. Uh, Deloitte consultants uh, a few years ago identified 422,000 households in Romania uh, illegally uh, or unofficially uh, connected to uh, to uh, electricity electricity grid. So this is a, a, a bigger prob problem than uh, the immediate uh, uh, crisis. Uh, obviously, most of these people uh, are uh, also uh, economically poor, most vulnerable uh, communities. When we look at the drivers of energy poverty in terms of low income, low energy uh, efficiency of, of homes, high energy price and socioeconomic determinants, we can see that Roma population is one of those that are most um, uh, affected by the conditions of economic uh, uh, energy, energy poverty. Uh, according to UND, UNDP and FRA research, uh, uh, about 10% of uh, uh, Roma in Europe do not have access to, uh, uh, to electricity. This is uh, far from uh, uh, average in Europe and much closer to the average of the poorest regions of the world. Now, the second point is about government measures. And the experts in the panel uh, know probably much more. I will talk about that. But we have seen that in the last months, uh, governments already took some, some measures. We will see what are the effects. But the package that the EU uh, has been discussing in the last months uh, concerned the 5% uh, mandatory reduction, uh, concerns the price cap that has different uh, political um, uh, conversations uh, uh, already uh, heated in the, in the public sphere. Uh, and we talk about solidarity uh, uh, levy. Once adopted, the government should uh, adopt those measures at the national level. And I think this is where the problem starts because um, we have to see how this will be done. But seeing from the past experiences, we should be very concerned uh, about this. Um, for example, when the financial crisis was uh, managed by the EU through more or less the same system of implementation by the, by the member st states, those that were too big to fail were uh, uh, supported and those that are too small to matter were actually worse off after the financial uh, crisis in comparison to, to, to the rest. That created a situation that a lot of people in Europe uh, fell deeper in poverty or are exposed to significant economic losses that created anger, fear and anxiety. This is where the populists and the far right most often supported by uh, uh, Putin's uh, Russia, uh, use the opportunity to turn 
poor majority ethnic population, as poor minorities, poor migrants, women today, LGBT populations, and so on. So basically, they weaponized for electoral gain this situation of, of uh, 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 post-financial uh, crisis. Recovery and resilience uh, funds will more or less show the same uh, uh, weakness. The just transition uh, also fell short, and my colleagues and I wrote and spoke about this, that the way it is shaped, it will not affect the most vulnerable populations that are mostly in the domain of informal economy. The financial crisis measures, recovery and resilience, just transition, all the major and most important uh, uh, policy uh, measures, policy reforms, but uh, they don't reach those that are in informal economy and those are usually most vulnerable uh, populations. What I hope will happen, and here I finish, will, uh, uh, will be, in my view, crucial for the most vulnerable, uh, most vulnerable people. Uh, I hope that the 5% reduction uh, of uh, uh, energy demand will not affect the most poor populations by uh, 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 cutting off electricity supply for them because of in, informal connection to an electricity grid or for um, uh, inability to pay that um, uh, uh, that is, has been accumulated for for long uh, for long time. I also hope that redistribution of revenues from the price cap and solidarity levy will also uh, uh, support uh, the uh, people who uh, uh, lost income during the uh, the pandemics, help micro micro and small family businesses to to, to survive not only the big companies who are big employers, uh, but also help uh, uh, individuals to get the new skills for green and digital uh, uh, markets. Markets That renovation uh, wave will uh, support uh, energy efficient housing, not, uh, not only informal, but also uh, informal housing, houses that can be legalized to be legalized, those that cannot, we, uh, sh should provide uh, options for, for social uh, housing. Uh, so all this is to say that we cannot look this in separate ways. The three major policy, policy undertaking, resilience funds, just transition energy measures, we have to uh, combine them and address the most vulnerable, especially in the informal economy, that, uh, that uh, within the 34 million uh, present the most vulnerable category. Shalko, thank you. Thank you very much. You really reinforce uh, how we need to make sure that the socially and economically vulnerable are clearly heard, clearly understood, and fully taken into account in, in policymaking. I, I hope you'll stay with us uh, this morning. Now, I'm going to put a first question to each of our panelists, and I'd like to ask for very quick responses, just, just one minute. It's a first round to get us all talking, and then we'll try and get a bit more detailed. We knew this crisis was coming. It's an energy and a food crisis, for that matter, driven by multiple factors, our existing economic system, Russia's invasion, climate considerations, of course. So my question, especially in light of what we've heard from Shelko, is Europe so far handling this crisis, these crises, fairly or unfairly? And, and please go with your preferred definition of fairness and for that matter, your preferred definition of Europe. Let's, let's start with you, Marc-Antoine. 
one minute. Thank you so much, and uh, good day to everyone. No, I think what is very clear from, from what we're experiencing now is that everybody now sees that going to 2030 is not a sunny journey. It's going to be accompanied by pain, and what we need is a wartime mobilization effort that is sustained over the next eight years. But we are not there yet. There is elements of that, but uh, it has to be consolidated. And I think the issue of uh, energy poverty is, uh, of course, now uh, adamant, uh, especially as we move towards winter. It's been there with, uh, for many years. Now, the point is, um, we've seen extraordinary mobilization by all EU member governments. Um, what is fair would mean, you know, you proportionately help more the most vulnerable and you proportionally help less those who need it less, right? Now, what we've seen so far is rather, well, we lay out large measures, VAT reductions, uh, gasoline price reductions. Uh, we pass on the renewables levies to state budgets. Um, so basically, there is a lot of approaches that are not targeted to the most, to helping the most vulnerable, but actually that benefit everyone. And we've seen elements of targeting the most vulnerable. Okay, we'll get into we'll get into that. But not enough. Okay, we'll get into that. And hence why it's not sustainable. Yeah. Olivia, uh, fair or unfair so far? Um, so I come from a geopolitical perspective. For me, the notion of fairness is related to the ability for nation states to deliver on welfare systems now and in, in the future. So as the previous speaker was saying, we need to reconcile short and long-term perspectives. From a structural perspective, I find that the EU in general is delivering quite well with new mechanisms and innovation, including potentially sort of, um, you know, uh, collectively uh, considering debt um, in order to sort of alleviate the inflation uh, crisis and uh, impacts on the poorest in the society. Um, we have to essentially sort of understand that some of these mechanisms and some of the responses that we as the European Union are developing to try and sort of, uh, you know, uh, deliver on safety nets have some echo chambers outside of Europe, including in Ukraine, because we're still, you know, um, bankrolling the uh, war effort uh, on the part of Putin. Um, but also much wider um, in the global south, um, knowing that at the moment when we are reconfigurating a lot of the energy depend dependencies, this notion of fairness in Europe, but beyond Europe, is extremely important. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that, that, and it's a big resource question. Yes. And uh, thanks also for uh, bringing up this idea of a debt instrument, which has come up in the last couple of days, too. Um, uh, Martin, uh, let me move to you. Uh, have is what you've seen so far from the EU fair or unfair? First, uh, also like Marc Antoine, thank you so much for the invitation. It's a great honor. Um, I think Russia tried to undermine the cohesiveness of the European society um, even before the start of the Ukraine, Ukrainian war, and so far Europe has managed to overcome this pressure, but. Uh, it has done it in a very, I would say, rude way. It was basically redistribution of profits among everyone, with special interests getting the biggest share of that. I think there has been no real targeting of vulnerable groups. On the contrary, there have been a stimuli, uh, a number of stimuli to increase energy waste. 
So instead of promoting energy savings, I think most European uh, governments have promoted uh, uh, both households and businesses to uh, um, basically preserve their status quo consumption uh, and their way of life. Um, and um, then the most energy poor, I mean, they remain energy poor even after the measures that have been taken uh, uh, by the government. We'll yeah. Deeper into that. Yeah. And um, Paolo, we've been talking about the EU response. You're from the European Commission. Um, how would you judge the performance so far, fair or unfair, especially when it comes to the socially and economically disadvantaged? And I hope I'm not suspicious. Uh, now, I think, first, and I like the idea of let's distinguish um, mid-long term and now the response to the crisis. Now, when we speak about the decarbonization and first uh, a climate neutral continent in the world by 2050. Already there, we're looking at what I call the virtuous triangle. It's about sustainability, it's about security and affordability. And therefore, the just transition, the notion of just transition to make sure that really we leave no one behind the nice logos, but really translate it into very concrete actions was already there. Now, with this, with this crisis, what happens is that what we used to call, yes, the vulnerable customers, the energy poor, this is now enlarged to the whole middle class, uh, where it's a much bigger scope. All of a the sudden, there are uh, households, families who, were, who would never be considered energy poor and are now uh, struggling with paying the energy bills. And that's where we are trying, uh, from the European Commission, but also with the institutions, to putting forward measures. And we've uh, started identifying those measures one year ago with a toolbox, indicating to member states what are uh, the tools that you can uh, uh, use to really uh, reduce the impact of uh, these prices on the energy bills and on a number of population which is much greater than just the 40 million that Jelko uh, mentioned or 35 million that Jelko mentioned we'll, at the beginning. We'll dive deeper into the effectiveness of those tools and I can't help but think how politically explosive uh, having such a large uh, middle class that is uh, uh, belt tightening could, could be and I'm sure we'll come to that too. Now, uh, thanks all for allowing me to hold you to time. Let's move on to uh, if I can call it a more sort of uh, a segment of our of our um, of our of our webinar of our event, which does dig a little bit deeper, Marc Antoine, governments, as you were describing, are mulling these various interventions in the electricity, oil, and gas markets to cope with uh, the price shock caused by the war. The elephant in the room here, to some degree, is Germany's 200 billion relief package, and now. Uh, the Chancellor is apparently making noises about joint EU loans. Uh, in any case, what sort of, in your view, to be specific, what sort of interventions would best target vulnerable communities and ensure that we are not subsidizing those who are actually able to absorb rising costs? You know, is it big one-off payments? Is it payments that incentivize savings? Is it carbon credits? Well, I... I may not surprise you, but I think it's a combination of measures. Um, clearly, we need the price signals. Uh, I come from France. In France, we've lost, to a large extent, the price signals because it's been, you know, we have regulated tariffs for electricity and gas, and the increases that were allowed are very narrow. And the consequence of that is that we are now launching an awareness campaign towards the larger uh, consumer groups, and we are telling them, you need to save in a hurry. 
and then they look at the bills and it's not really rising. So, you know, where is really the incentive there? And so the government says, well, you know, if we see it's not delivering, then we will turn to more, you know, regulated or to more stick kind of measures. But so clearly the price signal must be there. It must be accompanied by these awareness campaigns. It must also be then accompanied by, I think, these targeted measures, which is, I think, the energy check is a, is a, is a great tool, actually. The problem is, of course... The energy check. Yes, the energy check. Because it gives consumers the ability to pay for their rising bills. On the other hand, it gives them also the ability to say, well, you know, am I going to take my car to get there or am I going to save to, you know, do something else? And I think this is very important because one has to empower people to really resist and make choices. By the same token, I think it, it really matters to have those smart devices now rolled out, you know, that allow to really pilot consumption. And, and we are still far from that, at least uh, in, in, in many areas in Europe, I think. And, and the last point, I think, uh, which matters quite uh, importantly in, into all this is, of course, we need governments to show the example. Um, and, uh, and hence, and here I think there is a lot of uh, work that is being undertaken, which is very important. But we also need to make sure that, you know, there is a, a social energy tariff. And I really like this idea. Uh, it's been implemented here and there in Europe. And I think that is, uh, that is fundamental. Because otherwise, indeed, the biggest risk we have is we will have Putin working towards fragmenting us somewhere, sometimes quite successfully already, and then we will have ourselves adding to that fragmentation. And the last word on what Germany is planning, I mean, it's, it's remarkable because in a way it shows that, well, if you are rich and you can borrow at negative interest rates because of the inflation, etc., um, well, then, you know, you can bail out basically your consumers. You lay out a massive... Uh, fossil fuel subsidies that for the last 15 years in every possible international governance meeting you've been calling to you know phase out but actually you're reintroducing that because of various coalition arrangements etc but the point is if we think long term what are going to be the consequences in Europe because not everyone has that money and versus the rest of the world where people look and see well you're exactly doing the contrary to what you've been kind of calling up for the last 10 years or so so I think we have to get out of that contradiction and, and yes, go back, to, go back to EU support measures. Uh, you know, stop this fragmentation, work towards more cohesion because otherwise we, you know, this uh, European Union energy markets, institution, regulation, everything might well fall apart. Okay, thank you very much. Tough words on, on Germany there. I particularly liked the uh, idea of the check in the sense that it leaves the energy consumer with choice, right? You're, you're trusting them with choice. So those were a couple of things I picked up on. Um, Olivia, let's go deeper into some of the things that we may not be seeing clearly enough. There are new energy vulnerabilities we face as we look to go a lot greener, a lot faster. And allow me to put it this way. What is Lazard's law? What is Olivia Lazard's law of unintended consequences? And how might that impact ordinary people in this crisis? Thank you. Um, I'm becoming the blind spot girl. <laughs> it's a new tag. Um, let's get some basics right in order to answer this question. The first one is that if we want to decarbonize, we need to shift from a fossil economy to a mineral economy. We need a lot of different supply chains for rare earths, lithium, 
tantalum palladium. And essentially, it means that there is a, a new geopolitics, essentially, of supply chains. The second one is that the European Union is a region of the world that tends to outsource and externalize its energy provision. So we're looking essentially outside to the new dependencies that we need to create and how to reorganize essentially geopolitical relations according to the energy needs in Europe. Third, decarbonization, even though we never talk about it this way, is actually a project of a new industrial revolution in the making. And we want, in Europe, this revolution to happen at a cheap cost because this is how we empower middle classes, this is how we empower also innovation and European competitivity. And this is essentially the future of economic competition. So what are the um, ramifications essentially of these different aspects? Well, the first one is that if we look at the type of dependencies that the EU already has in terms of the supply chains for mineral components, we're looking at China. We know that we're already more than 90% dependent on China for the provision and processing of rare earths. Not just that, we're also over 60% dependent on China for the processing of lithium and other types of materials. So at the moment, it means essentially that we're looking at an ally of some sort, but also a systemic rival. And we don't exactly know where China wants to be headed in the future with this hegemonic, almost hegemonic capacity to essentially weaponize supply chains for political gains, including geopolitical ones. If we want to decouple or lessen dependencies on China, we also need to look at other types of dependencies. We also know that we're dependent on Russia for tantalum and palladium. What is the future of this relationship? What is the future of the relationship with Brazil, for example, in which we're dependent for niobium when you know, a current election is hanging in the balance regarding the future of the Amazon? All of these questions essentially sort of beg a geopolitical role for Europe. And we have to understand that the transition at the moment is playing out in a geomilitary sense as well. Russia and China are trying to gain access not just to active mining assets, but to prospective ones in order to constrain the ability of the EU to actually go about its own transition in a way which is somewhat smooth, somewhat reliable. What does it mean in terms of the end result for how we deploy clean tech in Europe? Well, it may imply essentially that we need to sort of nuance a little bit the message in terms of saying renewables are the cheapest source of energy. Yes, they can be at end-use installation, but the reality is that the entire supply and value chains that feed into the end-use product and who can you know, install solar panels on their roofs will depend on the geopolitical ability of Europe to sort of rethink the trade-offs of these different um, supply chains, how to incentivize private sector actors to respond to new market signals and how to try and create indeed supply chains that are reliable, secure, that are value-driven, that are not environmentally destructive to death, because this is one of the dangers of decarbonization, and that we can also propose a lot of new, we can, sorry, come up with value propositions towards partners in Latin America, Africa, Central Asia, the you know, Indo-Pacific and Eastern Europe, which are anchored in climate adaptation and anchored towards mitigating the costs and the impacts of decarbonization. Okay, that's very interesting because all of those costs eventually are going to play out uh, for all segments of society, including the, uh, the most disadvantaged in our societies. Right. Terrific. And uh, Martin, let me turn to you. You're very much the person to ask which countries in the EU are the most vulnerable this winter 
and beyond for that matter, uh, because you're doing research on this very topic. So which are these countries and to what degree does your modeling take into account the crises that ordinary people are facing? So we tried at CSD to develop uh, an energy and climate security risk index, um, which tries to measure exactly the vulnerability that different countries in Europe are facing uh, based on four main pillars, um, geopolitics or so geopolitical risk related to security of supply, um, import dependencies, etc., including what Olivia mentioned, which is a future kind of objective for us, to include metals and minerals into this geopolitical pillar. Affordability issues related to energy poverty, but also industrial competitiveness and the overall exposure of an economy to, to uh, the fossil fuel prices, electricity prices, etc. Reliability, so the ability of uh, transmission system operators, distribution grids, to actually bring the energy to the final consumer reliably uh, uh, and not to have outages because we are at a point where even outages is, is something to consider this winter. And sustainability risks which are related to uh, how European governments are faring in terms of their decarbonization goals. What we call in a way this, uh, uh, this assessment the great divide. The great divide between EU policies on energy security, sustainability and affordability and uh, actual national responses to all of these issues, which are very divergent, um, and, uh, uh, and we don't see a cohesive response, uh, which is one of the reasons why we're in this position right now. Because for the last 10 years, uh, we have pursued a common EU policy, which was interpreted very differently in different capitals, basically due to path dependencies that have dragged Europe in one direction or another. I would say, uh, in our assessment, Germany and Italy uh, seem to have been the most vulnerable countries, but also the ones that have single-handedly dragged Europe into this toxic dependence on, on, on Russia. They account for 50% of the increase in gas dependence on, on Russia over the last, actually since the Crimean annexation. Um, and um, Italy would, would probably be one of the most vulnerable countries this winter in terms of reliability of supply because 50% of electricity in Italy is produced by burning natural gas at this price of, uh, of natural gas and the lack of um, uh, reliable suppliers, although Italy has done a lot to diversify, makes it quite difficult for the country to deal with this uh, winter. France cannot uh, provide enough electricity. Switzerland also has problems with the nuclear power plants. So it's, it's very hard to see, and uh, the Western Balkans have their supply uh, deficit. So I don't see Italy actually getting enough electricity this winter without major demand response measures in, in place. Um, in terms of vulnerability crisis, uh, in, in terms of affordability crisis, I think Greece, uh, um, um, Bulgaria have been some of the most vulnerable countries. Greece has traditionally been very uh, exposed to energy poverty and uh, increased uh, uh, national energy expenditure expenditures, uh, but also the share of, you know, um, uh, the population that's vulnerable is quite significant. We're talking about uh, a quarter to a third before the current crisis. So we're talking until basically the end of 2021. Uh, we estimate that um, the increase in affordability risks all across Europe have risen by 50% since 2015. Uh, until 2021, but uh, our projection is that for 2022, the increase is another 30% at least. 
So this is a, a, a tremendous shift in, in, in energy poverty levels. This 40 million that Jeroko mentioned is probably 100 million at the moment. Uh, and uh, what, why is this such a, such a problem? Uh, because EU governments are slow to actually uh, enforce and implement both demand uh, response measures and direct support to, to vulnerable consumers, we might see a, roll, a, roll, a rolling wave of social unrest, which is exactly what Russia is aiming at. So we need to make sure that this, uh, this kind of backlash is prevented. Uh, why? First, because of unity on let, sanctions. Let, let, let's Last word. Okay. Because of unity on sanctions. Key. We need to remain united on sanctions. But second of all, uh, uh, to not undermine the decarbonization policy of Europe. We see an increase of coal-fired power generation all across Europe uh, and a signaling from many governments that it's okay to delay decarbonization reforms right now because there are bigger priorities. Great. Thank you very much, Martin. Those statistics are... Uh, both fascinating and, and frightening, uh, especially uh, when it comes to the huge number that uh, are now uh, in energy poverty by your reckoning, 100 million. Um, Paula, um, indeed, we have these numbers. You've heard the numbers. You've heard what uh, Jelko had to say. Um, I'll put it fairly straightforwardly. I mean, how confident are you that the measures that the Commission uh, your organization has put forth will be effective at helping stop these social crises from crises from erupting this this winter, the kind of crises that uh, that Martin was talking about. And I, I, I think he gave you a helping hand there by acknowledging that so much of this is to do with implementation by by member states. But with that in mind, how confident are you that can, the worst can be avoided? Listen, it's it's. Um when uh, already a year ago we started seeing the prices, the energy prices going up, and when we were, I was discussing with the colleagues, we were saying this has the potential to become an issue which goes far beyond energy and which goes far beyond an energy crisis. Because the moment that it touches on bills that every single citizen needs, needs to pay at the end of the month, it very easily becomes a social issue and a social crisis. And that very easily could become existential. Um, so it's, it's very, very serious. Um, and therefore, it's no surprise that for a year now, uh, one issue to be tackled has been energy security. And we did a lot uh, to really make sure that we can now face the winter. But also now we are already looking into the next winter. But at the same time, to look into the affordability, because if, it's, uh, if there's one thing which is very clear is that it's no longer affordable to have access to energy. For many, it has become a, a, a choice uh, between essential uh, services. So from the very beginning and already started one year ago when the Commission first put forward measures that uh, 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 meant to, to help member states in identifying what is it that they can do, because much of this is also a national competence. But then we've gone beyond and saying, for instance, regulated prices can uh, apply even below cost uh, to 
including companies, SMEs, which was not uh, the case before. So really going beyond what the, 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 the legislation were, was foreseeing. Um, and uh, uh, to really mitigate uh, the cost and mitigate the impact. Now, Zelko had mentioned the very last um, measures that the Commission put forward, which was demand reduction. We had put demand reduction for gas, which needs to be a no-brainer. Reducing demand of electricity, of gas, is an absolute no-brainer. It needs to apply across the economy. It's the households, it's the industry, it's everyone. Um, but at the same time, and the latest uh, set of, of initiatives, which it was endorsed just 10 uh, days ago by the energy ministers, was indeed the revenues stemming from the companies who are making much more profits than they could even ever imagine in the energy field. And those revenues need to be redistributed to allow to mitigate uh, the energy bills. And we believe these are absolutely indispensable because at the end of the day, it's really about, uh, it's really existential. And it's no coincidence, and uh, again, Zelko mentioned this at the beginning, that populists and the far right is making very good use of this, of this narrative. And all of a sudden we've seen in different member states uh, the political narrative of these parties being uh, the, uh, 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 the quality of life of people, uh, actually the lack of quality if they cannot pay the energy bills. This is now at the center of the, of the political uh, discussion. So it's absolutely key to, to, to put measures in place and we've been doing so that tackle them. You becomes a target here too. Yeah. So I, I'll just do a follow-up with you, Paola, because we're on this topic. I mean, the, um, you know, there are calls, I think, from a lot of groups that, you know, Brussels could be doing more to remove exemptions for business, industry, and aviation when it comes to, uh, you know, paying for their own pollution. Uh, perhaps more could be done on insulation of buildings, you know, really getting that rolled out, uh, and really making sure that this social climate fund, which again is, is something that's come out of the EU, gets up and running. Can you give us a sense of where these policies are right now? Uh, what stage we're at in terms of making sure that these policies are there in time to address some of the tensions mm -hmm. that you were just talking about and that Martin alluded to as yeah. well. Thank you, James. Well, the Social Climate Fund, and just for everyone's understanding, so it was part of the famous Fit for 55 proposals meant at decarbonizing, right? And so what um, in one of the proposals in July uh, 2021, uh, the Commission put forward um, a proposal to extend the carbon pricing, so the ETS, to buildings and transport. So this means there will be additional revenues stemming uh, from this. And the Social Climate Fund is about the redistribution, reinvestment of these additional revenues precisely in structural measures, in energy efficiency, in insulation of buildings, in renovation of buildings. And this, in turn, should benefit precisely the energy poor because very often these are the people who cannot afford on their own to do these renovations and are uh, paying high bills because simply the, the, the house is not insulated. So this was a structural measure being put forward even before this crisis. So again, as an example, and it's being, it's uh, a part of the, the, the package of um, 
legal proposals which is still being negotiated with the European Parliament, with uh, the Council. Now, it's clear that there is the sense of urgency and very often, and I, I need to say this because many often it's said, well, now we're deviating from the Green Deal, we're deviating from the decarbonization because there's more coal, there's more nuclear. It's true, but this is to face the imminent uh, urgency, this energy security aspect. But we are by no means uh, letting go on the structural decarbonization and mid-long-term measures. Quite on the contrary, we're accelerating it and the ambition is being even increased. So if you look at these measures, be it the social climate fund, be it the discussion about energy efficiency, about renewables, which are now still in the making with the European Parliament and the Council, there is even a proposal to increase these targets and to accelerate it because it's understood that what this crisis reminds us is that much more needs to be done much faster. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Now, I, before we get to a second round, I'm just going to bring in Shelko uh, to respond to what we've heard. Shelko, can you give us a, a couple of minutes um, on what you've heard? Yes, I, I think um, we have to take into consideration uh, what uh, uh, Chancellor Schultz said, uh, I think, uh, uh, at the end of summer when he visited the uh, Czech Republic. Uh, I think uh, uh, he, he, he was uh, recognizing uh, that the geopolitics, but I would say also geo geoeconomics of the EU's politics is, be is being moving uh, eastward. Um, and that Eastern Europe, um, uh, is becoming uh, the, the center of uh, um, important uh, uh, processes and decisions for, um, for the future. But I have to remind everyone, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm happy that I have a, a someone who's also from Eastern Europe like, like me, uh, that the post-communist transition has meant that the most vulnerable populations uh, during privatizations, during the movement to 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 the market economy, um, uh, actually uh, were pushed into the informal uh, economy. I mentioned this briefly at the beginning. Why is this important? Uh, in Romania, probably Bulgaria in a similar way, 30% um, uh, of national uh, 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 GDP comes from informal economy. But uh, in France and, and uh, Germany, it's about uh, 10 or 11 um, uh, percent. So the policies that we are talking about, we are not uh, uh, solving the issue how um, the, the uh, packages and policies that the governments should implement are somehow solving the issue that the more, uh, the, the, every shock like pandemics, uh, like energy crisis, like inflation, will only create more of people uh, falling into informality zone, which means they are falling beyond the reach of all, all the measures that we are talking about. Second point I want to uh, 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 reiterate that uh, the, the far right and populists and fascists present both domestic threats to democracy, but also a threat to the security of our countries. Uh, numerous studies that have shown that the Russian Putin's play, playbook uh, is about active support of undermining social cohesion and so, uh, so, so, uh, societal re uh, resilience 
of our populations in Europe. And this uh, is um, a threat that uh, uh, represents geopolitical uh, uh, vulnerability of European countries and therefore um, uh, European um, uh, Union because of the consensus or lack of consensus that we uh, have to, to face. And the final point I want to make that all the measures that we have to take into um, um, new dependencies and developing the uh, uh, economics of our countries, we somehow see all these measures outside of the me measures that governments uh, foresee for vulnerable populations, social, social groups, and so on. Where the demographic uh, potential lies in uh, Europe for the labor force shortages that Europe is already facing, in populations like Roma, in vulnerable populations, uh, 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 migration is also an issue and uh, weaponized. We have to look at the, the situation of vulnerable people, not separate from all these uh, economic and geo uh, geopolitical trends. We have to see it as a whole. Thank you, Shelko. Um, I want to turn back to you, Marc Antoine, because we've heard about this in terms of it being an existential challenge. We've heard about the vast numbers of people that are, are vulnerable. Let me put it. <laughs> Let me put it this way. Do we need a fairer system overall? I mean, what we are facing is a multi-year, if not multi-decadal challenge uh, when we put together all these different bits and pieces. And um, do you think that there's enough of this kind of thinking, this creative thinking in Brussels, where the default outlook is very much a pro-liberal economy, market economy outlook. Shouldn't we be a bit more concerned in Europe, given these challenges, uh, by the kind of social inequalities that are stemming from the existing economic system um, and, and not just from the transitions that are underway? Thank you, James. I think, um, I think we probably would rather need a much more effective and realistic strategy as opposed to fair, because that would be then included as a, as a sub-target. What I mean is, we are, beyond Ukraine, we are the world's largest loser of the polycrisis situation we're in. Uh, and, uh, and our strategic competitors in the world are really not so bad off as we are, and some will actually benefit. And within the EU, clearly the, most, the, the, the energy pores, which are growing, they are the top losers, but then there is the energy intensive industries, then there is the middle class. I mean, it's terrible. So what do I mean by a more realistic and effective strategy? I mean, it's very good to lay for ourselves much larger ambitions and objectives, but we have to be realistic. We will not be able to implement them simply because we have a lot, we're in a polycrisis situation. So it's not all the things being equal. No, all the things are degraded around us. So even if two years ago, it would have been a very tough ride towards 2030, for example, now it's even more complicated. So I think it's good to build that momentum, but we have to plan for a large failure of what we are planning for ourselves. And what do we mean by that? We have to think again about what are our strategic infrastructure plannings. We have to talk about big infrastructure again and look at, okay, what is really necessary? What is the most effective? We talk so much about hydrogen, very good, but it's just one part of the story. The external Green Deal dimension is not reduced to hydrogen. It cannot be reduced to hydrogen. We have to talk about electricity grids. We have to talk about sustainable electricity access and cooking in Sub-Saharan Africa. This is our stability belt, and hydrogen will not help anything there. 
to fix that. Um, we have to think again about what are our strategic gas infrastructures. We will not get out of gas. We are not getting out of coal anytime soon. So getting out of gas will be another challenge, but we need much less gas, of course, but we need to think again, you know, what is really needed, effective, etc. Uh, not everything, but still. Um, what can be better transformed? What electricity system, storage do we need? And this comprehensive yeah. approach, yeah. I think, is still missing. And what I see is that member governments turn to, you know, in France we have a national company, EDF, which preserves the entire population from the energy shocks, right? Germany is now nationalizing Uniper. In Italy, energy security is handled by ENI. You know, so we have to understand that you know we are all working on a renationalization of energy policies, of massive interventions, and probably this is needed because, as I mentioned, if we don't take the mindset of a war-type economy and mobilization, we won't get anywhere probably, right? Um, so, what well, a I few mean, thoughts on that. A wartime economy is very different from a from a pure free market economy. Absolutely. And I think, and I think that's, and and I think that what you were saying is that the situation is so grave hmm. that we should probably continue to move in that direction. Absolutely, Olivia. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, uh, who should be paying for the bulk of the costs for this energy transition. I mean, do we? And, and you've, you've spoken in some, uh, in some detail about, well, there are these very geopolitically complex challenges uh, about where we're going to get raw materials. Uh, all of that's going to take the kind of planning that uh, is going to be expensive. I mean, how, how do we go about this in such a way as financing cleaner solutions uh, not just for society at large, but for some of the vulnerable groups that, that Shelko was talking about, the elderly, disabled, energy poor, low-income consumers. W what is your feeling about how you can, I mean, you, you've got a close eye on these remarkable technologies that are just around the corner. How do we make them universally available? Um, I'd like to build upon what Marc-Antoine was saying, but also Jelko. And Jelko made a really important point drawing from history where when essentially we, um, we still bear the consequences of what we called the shock therapy during the 90s and how it essentially completely destructured um, international markets. It forced people to go into informal markets, but it also created illicit markets. Um, and it's connected to this larger story of how we look at the transition, which once again is a question of political economic transformation. It plays out at local levels, at national levels, at regional levels in the case of the EU, but also at global levels. So in any political and economic transformation, you have winners and you have losers. At the end of the day, what we're talking about today is a transition where it is an exercise in collective solidarity. And as the mantra goes, we have um, a collective responsibility, but differentiated um, responsibility. And it plays out at the international level, but it also plays out in the makeup of the EU today. So at the moment, since we're essentially sort of reacting to a, a fundamental shock, not just in terms of inflationary pressures playing out on energy markets and food markets, which some may have, some saw coming, but a lot of us didn't. The question is essentially how we put into place the mechanisms that, again, sort of allow the European states and the European Commission to deliver on welfare. Um, so on, on this, we, we need to reconcile essentially some structural 
mechanisms, such as the um, collective indebtedness, for example, which we mentioned before, which is rather good news in terms of collective you know, solidarity. We need to reconcile what it's going to mean in terms of tax imposition for current and future generations and how it sort of constrains the ability of the EU to deliver. And it need, we need to sort of also see how indeed whatever mechanism is put into place today is directed towards granularity in terms of policy making for how to support the most vulnerable to transition along rather than be pushed into economies that will be negative coping mechanisms on the long term and which will undermine the European ability to function in its transition. Now, this is the current situation. I just want to spend a minute talking about how do we look at the sort of next decades, particularly the next five years, which are going to be very important. And it's all about preventing and anticipating shocks. We have to understand that the market ideology where supply chains are going to function super well and we're going to have, you know, like a, a delivery of minerals and, you know, uh, sort of raw products into Europe, this era is gone. The, we, we have entered into an era where the weaponization of supply chain is a thing. It is a fundamental factor of systems. That means that essentially we need to prevent and anticipate the future shocks that will play on inflationary pressures and play on the ability essentially to develop and deploy clean tech. That means that today we need to have conversations about public and private partnerships, how to accompany essentially new types of extractive ventures in Europe, which will have social environmental and political costs, and we need to be very clear-eyed about them. We need to plan for the losers of this transition and the mining extraction um, in Europe and elsewhere. And we need to also bring mining actors, which have a tremendous role to play in this transition, into an environment with, where, we, where we can provide them with some security from a public perspective, de-risk investments, but also ask them as a result to take a different type of role in climate adaptation conversations and you know, public delivery, in uh, how to make sure that there is a corporate social responsibility that really works on community resilience. And then we need to just make sure that we have a larger vision over how this transition is indeed going to play on different political and economic segments within Europe, and how we don't favor European publics completely at the expense of um, you know, public constituencies in Africa and Latin America. So this is, this is a collective. That's, that's great. Thank you for linking that back to new ways of thinking about the market yeah. and some of the limitations of our old ways or the ways in recent decades we've been thinking about that. Now, Martin, um, Jelko and much of the panelists talked about lessons from uh, the, the, the post-Soviet world more broadly. I thought you might want to respond to that a little bit, as well as talk about perhaps where uh, your very interesting research is going to be going next. You've, 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 got, you've put together these complex and fascinating indices that are yielding fascinating results. Where, where, where do you want to take this next, and how much will that tell us about who's going to be vulnerable in the years ahead? Thanks, James. Um, just building on what Olivia mentioned, we need a policy instrument, and I'm saying that honestly, self-servingly, but we need a policy instrument like such an index to name and shame how different countries are comparing on the common paths that the EU has. Uh, because we get lost in these national energy and climate plans, these long documents that no one reads, sorry to say, 27 of them, which uh, are very divergent. And, they, and there is no real governance mechanism, and that gets me to the, the, the kind of Eastern European question. There is no governance mechanism on EU level that uh, 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 basically enforces 
EU policies and bridges the gap between national objectives and new objectives. Uh, this over-concentration on the TFEU's principle that energy is you know, a national priority and, and you cannot matter. We need uh, uh, you know, a change of the treaty, basically, uh, in, in, the, in the future. Uh, because otherwise, there will be different countries moving in different directions. Um, um, and um, so the fifth pillar in this index, or this instrument that, uh, that needs to be developed, is governance, good governance. Um, in many cases, these great EU policies, uh, including you know, the package, the clean, the clean package, clean energy package that was on, announced uh, five years ago, um, uh, is not implemented in practice in many places. How many EU member states have actually implemented the energy efficiency directive? How many, uh, do we have a mechanisms to account how many of the new buildings built all across Europe are near zero energy buildings? Uh, and especially in Eastern Europe, talking about that, um, uh, uh, you know, a region which faces huge structural economic problems related to the, uh, to an, to the energy transition process, uh, 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 related to deindustrialization, uh, depopulation, demographic crisis. How would these countries, half of the EU, going to implement all of these complicated, uh, you know, legal packages that are related to uh, basically uh, undermining the very fabrics of huge regions? Uh, um, uh, so we need good governance, um, uh, and we don't need to splash society with easy money. So these subsidies need to be targeted towards specific um, demand reduction uh, uh, measures to uh, um, changing the industrial uh, uh, processes. So, um, you know, gas phase out may be difficult. Mark Antoine is right that gas is not going to be gone in five years, but we need to target the subsidies so that companies uh, have incentive to change the way they produce goods, the way they consume energy, so that they replace gradually natural gas with biomass in industry or with hydrogen or synthetic fuels, etc. Uh, just splashing companies with money would not get us there. Um, and finally, on, on where we, we're heading, we're heading exactly in where Olivia is, uh, what Olivia was mentioning. We need a, a, a kind of a strategy for French-shoring energy transition. Uh, not near-shoring, French-shoring. Near-shoring is impossible. We cannot bring all the supply chains to Europe. So instead of relying on China for 90% of solar panels that are being installed in Europe, we need to find a new uh, uh, kind of paradigm for engaging Latin America, Africa, uh, and Asian countries that are willing to go within the Western camp. Because, you know, if we overcome the Ukrainian crisis, and I think we are ready to do that, the next crisis uh, will be confrontation with China. And I think uh, many European countries, including Germany, are making the same mistake with China as they did with Russia. Thank, thank you very much, Martin. I, Paolo, let me come back to you because a lot has been said about uh, some of the limitations of the EU in, in terms of dealing with the topics today. And one of those is that, you know, how much, how much control do you really have over what nation states do? That seems to be one of the elephants in the room here. Uh, do you see this as an, do you see these crisis, the polycrisis as an opportunity to perhaps overcome this problem of what is running 
sort of a federation, which is the European Union? Mm -hmm. Do you see a leap ahead, or are you, do you think we'll sort of remain in this never-never land of never really quite being able to coordinate things in the way that uh, Martin was saying, uh, to the point where we don't really know who is implementing what? Mm. Well, I think, yeah, a crisis test, test us, right? Uh, and this has been a, a huge test um, for everyone, but also for the EU. And as it has been said at the very beginning, I think um, it's been remarkable, the EU unity so far, um, despite the differences, despite the national specificities, but on the core issues, the, the member states of the European Union have been standing behind. And it's pretty, pretty uh, remarkable. And I think it was not expected, probably by the one uh, agitating all of this, um, who always played on the divide and rule very, very much and uh, using energy precisely as an instrument to divide uh, the EU member states and rule offering interesting gas deals to ones and not to, to others uh, in uh, absence of any transparency, etc. So it's been quite, quite remarkable. So I think in many instances, um, the EU is coming out strengthened. Uh, I had never seen so much um, uh, uh, unity in many uh, aspects as, as, as this far. But then you do have challenges, and you, we've mentioned the, the, the German uh, measure now of uh, supporting uh, their uh, citizens, and we keep coming back, and probably we've never made so much use of the legal basis in the treaty, which is a famous article 122, which refers to solidarity in emergency uh, situations, and we've mentioned that before, and which has allowed us now really to issue measures where not all member states were equally concerned. Take, for instance, Spain and Portugal, which are really not so much exposed in terms of, of gas dependence from Russia, but who were willing to commit to measures, which again should be a no regret in a, a spirit of solidarity for the EU within the EU. Yes, yep. and that, that coalition has been very big, uh, has right. been... Uh, has right. been uh, but let me, let me take it to, to a specific level, yeah. which is, um, l let's take the idea that um, all EU countries need to curb their power use by 5%. That, that, yeah. that came up, I think it was something that Shelko uh, talked about. And of course there are concerns about well, you know, some parts of society are going to be able to cut by a certain percentage a lot more easily than, than others. I mean, do, how much do you and your officials stay awake at night, if I can put it that way, thinking, well, how do we get member states, how do we design this in such a way that we don't penalize the worst yeah. off in society? Yeah, and that's why if you then look into the details, there are derogations which are uh, foreseen and precisely taken into consideration the different levels of challenge for the different member states. And it's always uh, the beauty and the challenge of any, any negotiation of a legal proposal with 27, because you really need, everybody needs to see there's something in it for, for me as a, as a member state and for, and for my constituents back, uh, back home. So we need to always find that. And that's what I, I, I say, it's been pretty remarkable how far we've been uh, uh, able to go in terms of really, um, 
uh, for instance, the demand reduction has been a clear one where both on gas, both on electricity, and we know it, 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 it has different impacts on the different member states, but everybody stood behind the clear message, we need to reduce uh, demand. Please, just, just while I've got you, this idea of an EU energy union, it can, uh, we have a question here in our thread from, uh, in fact, from Iskra Kirova uh, from Open Society uh, here in, in, in the EU, uh, asking, well, you know, this has been pending for some time, this idea of an energy union. And uh, Charles Michel, again, uh, the EU uh, Council President, spoke of this. You know, would this be a step forward? What does the Commission think about this? Uh, and, and, and how do you, what for you might be one or two of the key elements of an energy union? Is it, is it pretending to have unity, or might it actually do something to create real unity? Yeah. The key at the core of the energy union is solidarity, uh, really. And now, as said, we've been tested, uh, as we've never thought we would uh, uh, on it. Um, and the energy union is, is about these five pillars. It's the decarbonization, it's, uh, it's security, it's about just transition, it's about competitiveness, where we bring all this uh, together. And the thing is, uh, we're being challenged on practically all those fronts. Uh, uh, and so the virtuous triangle that I meant, that I referred to at the beginning is, is now uh, almost uh, a vicious uh, triangle in terms of the challenges it is, uh, it is uh, putting. So because to address the energy security, you risk putting at stake the decarbonization uh, issues. And yet, as said, no, we cannot lose track of the medium and the long-term vision. And we're bringing that together. And it is not possible to face these challenges as uh, alone as a, as, as a member state, as a country. And I think it's become very, very clear to all member states, and this is the energy union in the That's making. Even Germany, even Germany is also, uh, um, is also and, and it, it's been clear on all the measures that have been ad adopted, even Germany needs the support and, uh, and, and uh, the embracing by all, uh, by everyone. Otherwise, they cannot do it on their own. Olivia, you wanted to come in again. Well, I wanted to sort of build upon the French roaring idea because this is a really important point um, about the future of energy security in, in Europe and about the future of dependency relations. And there is a question to, to ask there because at the moment, at least when I go to the field in Africa, Latin America and, um, and Central Asia, I see that there's been a lot of movement happening on the part of Russian and Chinese counterparts already in terms of acquiring, again, active mining sites, but also prospective ones. And the reality is that Europe is extremely late to the game when it comes to its own sort of extractive um, outlook and how it sort of organizing, organizes an extractive ecosystem to feed into the upstream supply chain in terms of clean tech development, in terms of innovation, in terms of economic competitivity and, th and things like this. So there is a question mark over how to approach essentially friends. And there is a question mark as to how we define friendship in the future. Um, there is, first of all, I think a, a, an, an awakening or wake-up call happening in Europe at the moment that indeed we need to approach countries that we've been scolding a lot in the energy transition with a different proposition. We need to recognize that the countries where we may look very quickly in terms of extractive ventures are countries that are highly climate vulnerable, 
They, are, they host a lot of the critical ecosystems that regulate the global climate regime. We're talking about you know, places like Brazil or the DR Congo, the Central African Republic, Myanmar, you know, like all of these different places. And so there is essentially a very tight rope for Europe to be walking in the future in terms of how do we respect environmental standards in our own transition? How do we respect um, or deliver on climate adaptation and therefore collective mechanisms, including in forums like COPs, where we can expect, especially with COP27, that things will get extremely complicated. But then also, how do we reconcile, and this is the part around, you know, like wanting to have supply chains that are value-driven, we're going to have to face some really complicated com conversations. Because the reality is that the energy transition, when we look very closely in the background, is being used by certain actors in Russia and in China to propel authoritarianism, to propel corrupt governance, and to essentially use violence, poverty, and underdevelopment as a business model within the transition. How do we respond to this? We have not even started to ask this the question really, in the European really Union. Fascinating point. And in fact, it's something that's come up in, in Martin's work. And so, Martin, I'll start with you, and then I'll come to Marc-Antoine on this point about how do we spend the money. And Martin, in, in your research, you've pointed out that there might be, um, it might be better to focus on individual and community-level incentives because of some of these problems about how money is spent and uh, you know, how it can be misspent. Before moving to this question, uh, just again to, to what Olivia mentioned, and uh, this is very unpopular in Brussels, and I understand that. But we need, uh, we need a transatlantic approach to, to energy and climate security, and especially to metals and minerals. Europe cannot go along with that. We need the US. We need the OECD in general. Uh, so we need to tackle that in the framework of a large alliance of like-minded nations that have more or less committed to climate neutrality by 2050 and are committed to uh, uh, backing that up militarily, I would say also, diplomatically, and also economically in terms of financial resources because we're talking about bankrolling very politically unstable uh, countries all across the world so that they can actually sustain these uh, uh, product production trajectories of metals and minerals without corruption, without uh, degradation of governance standards and blocking the access of China and Russia into this market. Because we, let's not kid ourselves, we're in a global economic confrontation right now. We, that's not- And then how do we deal with that at home? The, yeah, so, so how do we deal? So, so, I mean, it, it sounds banal, but it, it, some of the truest things are banal. The, the true energy independence is to basically produce energy at home. More and more. So uh, Europe has been proclaiming for, for a decade and more that decentralization of energy supply uh, should be the way towards full decarbonization. Uh, well, we, we are very far away from that. We, we st the energy transition process is still based on utility scale developments. Because, I mean, it makes sense, you know, if, we want, if you want to reach a certain target, let's build huge solar parks, offshore wind, power uh, plants, etc. That's good. I mean, we need some of that, but we need to also bring the transition at home. Um, uh, there's so much un unexplored potential for uh, decentralized power supply. Uh, this is in relation to also demand response, so heat pumps. I know th this work is becoming really too used, overused, heat pumps, but heat pumps really. Uh, 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 solar panels, heat pumps, 
locally produced energy, even biomass-based uh, uh, production. In some countries, Central and Europe, uh, Jerko will, will, will probably agree, you know, 30 to 40 percent of heat, heating supply comes from burning firewood. This is not very sustainable. We need to find a, a more sustainable way. But this is what households, especially vulnerable households, will be looking at. How can we uh, uh, move into the transition without compromising our ability to actually heat our homes? Uh, so, so biomass is also one issue. So, uh, but this needs to be a citizen-led process. So we cannot have vertically centralized solutions without involving and engaging communities and their solutions to, to and how they see transition happening for and, them. And yet a wartime approach to this involves central planning to some degree. Marc-Antoine, can you, can you finish up our panel for us with a few thoughts? Because we've, we've just got a couple of minutes left, and I think that's enough time for you to sort of wrap, sure. wrap it up um, for thank us. Thank you. That, that's a privilege. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try to bring an additional oil to the fire. But the point is, if we, I mean, I, I try to engage a lot with people in, in the Middle East and elsewhere. What you really sense is that Europe is increasingly seen as a side event of, you know, the global stage, which is happening between Russia and China, where the Middle East, which everybody thought is completely discounted, is going to run out of money, etc. Well, they actually send the stage. We mentioned the resource, the mineral resource holding countries, etc. And then they look at Europe. They see we have a lot of problems. They see that we come up with thousand pages of legislation on everything. And, and, and the business world is happening elsewhere. And we are not center stage of that. So I think we, but we have huge opportunities. We have huge capabilities. And we, and definitely they should, of course, not underestimate that. But the point is, so what shall we do externally? I think we have, yes, we should work with the US, with Canada, with other OECD like-minded countries. And here, if we do mineral alliances, we have to be aware that, you know, if we lock, knock on the door of countries that are much more advanced, <laughs> you know, we will not get anything out of that. So we have to first, you know, beef up our own capabilities and then sit on the table and discuss the terms. Otherwise, you know, it will be on other terms. That's the point A. Point B is, let's face it again, what is realism? Realism means we will not reach our targets in, except if we destroy our economies. Uh, by the timelines we have set for ourselves. So then let's focus with the US, which will also not reach its targets, and which, by the way, has much less ambitions. Let's work with them towards the just energy transition mechanisms in Africa, in Southeast Asia, with the Asian Development Bank, with the African ba Development Bank in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Let's roll out very effectively, you know, this earlier closure of the coal-fired power plants, the additional systems, low carbon one to be able to... Well, these are the issues to then fix, which will benefit our companies, our economies alike. And, and again, let's be a realistic, that is, let's not assume we will have 700 gigawatts of renewables by 2030 in addition to what we have now. Let's not assume we can do all that, you know, in phasing out nuclear, etc. So let's be realistic, let's put our ideologies aside, you know, on the Ukrainian front lines, the soldiers are not discussing whether, you know, oh, it's better to fight the Russians with a gun or with a knife or with a machine person, or that's an Austrian one, or the one. no, they're just using anything they can, and, and, and we are not there yet, because there's still too many ideologies around, I think, unfortunately, as far as the energy trajectory and mix is concerned. And, and the last point on, the, on, on this party crisis we're in, I think it's a huge change because, as I said, we were all walking into this accelerated energy transition thinking that it's just business as usual with a little bit of additional twist here and there. 
So now everyone understands it's not the case. And I think that's, that's our lack. And, uh, and Paula mentioned it. I mean, you see discussions, et cetera, that are unprecedented. And I think that's really our change. But, uh, but again, there is a number of conditions that you know, still need to, be, need to be in place so that we you know, move on the right trajectory. Okay. 30 seconds, Olivia, because you wanted to pop back in again. And then actually, we, ha we do have a minute left for, for Shelco. I think it's just we need to grapple with the reality that there is no energy independence ever. So going forward, when we talk about open strategic autonomy or however we want to talk about the future of Europe, what we need to ensure is that we reconcile what energy security means in Europe, what are the necessities here, but what are the necessities elsewhere, and therefore how can we move collectively with partners, with different regions of the world towards a redefinition essentially of what um, resilient societies are going to mean in a climate disrupted world, but also that means what a redefinition of power is going to mean. And here I, I, I'm very intently using the power um, pun, power in terms of energy and what it is used for, but also in terms of ideology and international governance and what type of dependencies we want to create in order to um, sustain a stable and healthy, fair, and prosperous future for all. Super, thank you. Shelko, just, I think we have about a minute and 30 seconds left. Um, please, please uh, bring so, us out. I just, I just want to, to, to uh, build on what's been said on realistic, collective, social resilience and governance. I don't think we need to look only from the, uh, the of external uh, factors and actors. We have to look at ourselves and do some soul searching within Europe on the issues of good government. Uh, weaponization of energy in the uh, life of is not a new factor. Many mayors, uh, uh, members of parliament, ministers use before elections uh, energy supply for our most vulnerable communities for uh, conditioning their vote before election. This is not uh, a particularity of one country or one community. Second, on the uh, dependency, I still believe there is uh, underutilized strength of uh, uh, vulnerable people in Europe. Just in the case of Roma, we have a demographic shortage uh, um, uh, in terms of labor force uh, in Europe already, especially in Central Eastern Europe while uh, uh, Roma population is the most demographically vibrant community in Europe with three to four times uh, more young people up to 15 years old than the uh, societies we live in. So mobilizing this through the reform that, uh, and, and funds and opportunities that we have right now with the EU package will be essential to be seen as part of the solution rather than vulnerability to deal with in the power. And so it is, uh, uh, I think, a source of strength that we have to mobilize at home. Shelko, thank you very, very much. And uh, I just want to say thanks to all of our panelists. I got a lot out of that. And I think you deserve a round of applause from our audience here. Thank you. Thanks for you. And uh, please, please be sure to go.
go into the chat thread and find the previous uh, editions of this series. And thank you very much for tuning in.